Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and the world to episode 28. You know, an alarming majority of the workforce is disengaged and unmotivated. And the employees everywhere aren't helping their organizations with creativity and innovation and bringing their best self to their work. I mean, so what gives? Well, in a book released last year called Alive at Work, the neuroscience of helping your people love what they do Author Dan Cable shows us that the reason for all the unhappiness at work is biological. Leaders are shutting off the part of our brains that craves exploration and learning. But the good news is that we as leaders, we can flip a switch in the brain of our employees. And when we learn to do that, it could be a game changer. It could be a game changer for your culture and for the lives of your employees. And the even better news is that it doesn't cost much financially. Dan Cable joins us today to discuss his research and the neuroscience that will make us come alive at work. So who is Dan Cable? He is a premier social psychologist and professor of organizational behavior at London Business School. His teaching and work is focused on culture and employee engagement and the link between brands and employee behaviors. Among numerous achievements, too long to list here, Dan has been ranked among the top 25 most influential management scholars in the world. His research has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Business Week, and his list of clients include some of the biggest brands on the planet, including Coca-Cola, Estee Lauder, Ikea, McDonald's, and Twitter. It is my pleasure to welcome you, Dan Cable, to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you, Marcel. This is going to be fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it Love is. the title of it. Yes, and you are calling in from London, so I appreciate, I know there's a time difference, so I appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your schedule. I always start with this, Dan. What what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Wow. It's going to go heavy really fast. (laughs) (laughs) But um, about 15 years ago, start with the top, I got a really serious illness. And uh, it was a stage four lymphoma. And I didn't die. And it's very interesting how that right off the bat changed how I view the days. They seem a lot more like joy now. (laughs) So even though it's 15 years later, the truthful answer to your question is I get another day. (laughs) In terms of topic, um, right now I'm writing another book. And the thing that I'm focusing almost all my energy on is this idea about learning who we are at our very best, learning when we are exceptional, our own, our own brand of exceptional, and then trying to get there more often. Yeah. And so that's what's making me jump out of bed from a work perspective. That's great, Dan. That's great. So let's talk, let's talk about this uh, book that was actually released uh, about March of last year. That's right. And uh, we're talking about Alive at Work. So let's skim the, first, the surface first. What's the big idea behind this book? I think that the most important thing is that the emotions of winning have changed. That the emotions of competitive advantage, 
if you go back 50 years, 30 years even, fear solved a lot of the problems that organizations had because what was so important is continuity, reliability, and efficiency, predictability, controls, execution. And the idea was smart people at the top figured stuff out and then execution meant rolling it out to everybody so they knew their roles. And sometimes you do the same thing for five years. Sometimes you do the same thing for 10 years. Yeah. And I think that the big idea in the book is that fear is not the emotion that leads to change, agility, innovation, creativity. It's the wrong emotion. And so the book is a quest to try to understand how can leaders activate the emotions of competitive advantage for today? Okay, this is good because it's a segue to my next question. So I'm going to geek out here on the neuroscience. So geek out good. with me, man. Uh, and listeners, just bear with us because this will make more sense for you practically and, and for application. So the neuroscience, you talk about what is referred to something that, that happens in the employee's brain, okay? And, it, and it's called the seeking system. So let me set it up first. So when the seeking system is deactivated in an employee's brain, and which organizations and leaders are not really aware of, I mean, who's thinking about this, Dan? We go to the work, it's a transactional business world. We're not thinking about what's happening in our people's brains. What happens is when, when it's deactivated, people lose motivation and purpose. Okay, so start there. What, what is the seeking system? Okay. The seeking system would be different parts of our brain. I think it's not best to think of it as a compartment or a drawer because the brain is very diverse and it, it borrows and reappropriates parts of itself for different things. So think of it as a system. And that system can be called the ventral striatum. That's what the sort of neuroscientists call it. Mm -hmm. But what this system does is it, A, causes us to want to learn from the environment and play with the environment. And I don't mean play just like a child. I mean experiment with the environment to see how it responds to us. Now, children do play a lot because they have a lot to learn about the environment. <laughs> so when they're role-playing house or parents or inventors or jobs, they're trying it on. They're seeing how it fits. They're seeing how it feels. Well, even as adults, there is this part of us that yearns to learn and it pushes us out beyond what we already know. And that's an urge. It kind of wells up from within. And when we follow this urge, this is an important part of the system, it delivers us some dopamine. It rewards us. That's the best way to say it. It rewards us with a drug called dopamine. And that dopamine is a really important part of this system. And if you want to sort of geek out on dopamine, there's some very interesting things I can tell you about it. But for now, all we have to say is it rewards you for learning and for experimenting. Okay. So you're, in a sense, encouraging playfulness in the workplace. So <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the skeptical boss that's going, <laughs> wait a minute. Hey, we're adults here. This, this is business. We can't play. You know, we got clients and deadlines and strategies and, and metrics to meet, et cetera. So what does playfulness look like in a way that makes business sense? Yeah, that's great. And, you know, it is really important to talk about the freedom within a frame 
So the frame of ongoing operations, for example, would be the promises that we've made to customers about quality levels or due dates. There are also regulations that we have to meet. So the external world says, hey, you got to do it this way. (laughs) And it's also about controls. You know, when you're a two-person organization in 1850 making shoes, you can just look around and trust the people. You know, that's my son or that's my daughter. And we're running this little shop. And so they're family. I trust them. When you're 20,000 people, you can't know everyone. You, right. you need mechanisms, policies, controls. So those are realities. And we're not saying you don't have those. And in fact, you have to have those. And I'll tell you this too. If you're only gearing yourself up for this quarter, that's all you'd have to focus on. Becoming very efficient at what we already know how to do. That's an execution philosophy, and you're basically exploiting what you're already good at. And I think that's really important. Unfortunately, I say fortunately, but for a lot of managers, it feels unfortunate. The world changes fast enough now that if that's all you're focusing on, you learn how to efficiently produce things that nobody wants. Mm. You, know, you become Kodak, you become Nokia, you become Blackberry, you become, you know, insert... Mm. insert new blockbuster, Saab automobile, you know, it's these huge and great organizations that never thought they could lose it. I mean, Kodak was a $92 billion business 10 years ago. So, you know, it's this idea of if we're only making things more efficient that we know, then we're not making ourselves very robust for the future. If we're only being playful and curious and trying new things and experimenting without minding existing business, we don't have much of a business. Mm. (laughs) And that's what leadership is, in my opinion. Managing is about controlling ambiguity and moving ambiguity out of the organization. Leadership is about inviting it in, in constrained ways that help us learn, grow, stay relevant but without sinking the ship that we're on. Okay. Okay. So if I'm activating the seeking system in the brain so that employees are feeling motivated, what I'm really doing is I'm encouraging experimentation. Um, I'm uh, encouraging maybe even self-discovery, things of that. Now, is there anything else that you would say? A couple other words, and it's really important. Let's talk about behaviors, but let's also talk about emotions. Because remember, the word emotions, what emotions are, are feelings that motivate behavior. So, for example, when you feel fear, which is a great emotion, people call it a negative emotion, it saved our ancestors' lives. We're here because of fear, okay? (laughs) So fear is an extremely powerful emotion, and what it does is it narrows your attention on the threat. So that you screen out all the stuff that's not going to hurt you and you focus on what's going to hurt you. And I got to tell you, fear has its place. You know what I mean? It's a focuser. It's not so good for creativity and innovation. It's not Hmm. so good for being playful with new ideas. It's not so good for um, practicing even though it feels like you're failing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a place for it. But to the extent what you want are certain behaviors, like trying new things or being willing to take a risk, the emotions that you need is curiosity, not anxiety. You need excitement, not fear. You Mm. need thrill, not threat. Okay, okay. And here's the great thing, uh, Marcel. I mean, I mean great thing. This is the biology part. What I'm saying, um, it's actually not psychology. Ultimately, emotions solve problems which help our survival. And 
fear is stronger than curiosity. It's faster and it's stronger. And so if you're a senior leader and you tweak fear, you're not going to get much curiosity for a while. You're going to get focus, threat, and action. So listen, if you know what to tell them to do, fear might work. For the short term. The problem is today, lots of leaders don't know what to do. <laughs> they want their employees' help. <laughs> I love this. You said, and this, this is tracking right along what you just said, that you said the emotions of competitive advantage have, have changed. In the past, they were exactly what you just said, fear, you know, anxiety and conformity to rules. And so what are the new emotions of competitive advantage? You mentioned curiosity. What else? Yeah. Curiosity, excitement, enthusiasm. Those are the ones that, um, those are the best ones that I know of. There's also gratitude, but um, I don't, we don't need to go into that one. And that's not part of this circuit. You know, this system that I focused on in this book, it really is, again, there's a chemical, it's called dopamine. And the dopamine opens up learning centers. It causes the feeling of zest. And I wouldn't mind saying a word about zest, Marcel. And this is for you and me, even as much as it's for leaders that are, it's the feeling of zest is one where life feels like an adventure that we get to do. And that's the, when you don't have a lot of dopamine, it's like a minor depressive symptom. Life starts to feel like a hassle that we have to do, that we have to get through. Mm -hmm. And, that drug leads to that enthusiasm about not just work, but about life. Mm. Mm. It's really mm. important. Okay, so here's where my brain is going, Dan. I'm, I'm sitting in the boardroom with my, I'm the executive with my management team, and I say, okay, I have just bought into the, the neuroscience that Dan talks about. We have got to bring more curiosity, enthusiasm, and excitement into our job roles. How do we craft jobs around those three things so that That's employees right. are just, boom, they're, they're doing it? That's it. And I loved earlier when you brought this up that it doesn't take money so much as mindset. So yeah. let's talk about three triggers. And I have so much data on each of these. And I won't, I won't really, what I'll do is I'll, I'll mention each of the three and maybe I'll give one story that kind of rolls them all together. And Perfect. then, yeah. Okay, so the first one is this idea about highlighting people's unique strengths and the unique things that they bring to the party. And it's almost to be contrasted with, treat them like robots, <laughs> act like they're not human, uh, make them interchangeable. You know, the original industrial revolution was make people interchangeable and give them a tiny task and anybody can do it. And so that's number one. Second one is this idea about prompting curiosity by making a safe space to experiment and learn. And even if that's an hour a week, two hours a week, it's better than nothing, but some organizations are getting to the point where they have what's called psychological safety yeah. that people feel in every seat, not just the leaders and not just in R&D, in every seat, they feel like I understand the outcomes of my job and I'm allowed to invent ways toward those outcomes, even if I haven't been told to do it. I know I won't get hurt as long as my intentions are in the right place. That's the second one. And then the third one is personalizing purpose. And what I really mean by that is that each employee feels the impact of their work. They know who their work is affecting and they can understand how when they do their work well, who's affected by that. And so those are three triggers. And like a real quick example, I mean, there's hundreds and 
there's so many ways here, but a quick one is about six or seven years ago, I was dealing with somebody in my class from KLM Airlines. Mm. And they're one of the bigger airlines in the world. They're about 42,000 employees and so on. And it was six years ago, and the senior leader was trying to get them to start moving towards social media, like using social media, because back then it wasn't really a thing. And so anyway, um, he got a little budget together, literally 10,000 euro, and went up to his group, 108 people in Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam. And he said, does anybody really into social media? Like, does anybody use it at home? Like, who uses Facebook? And some hands went up. And he said, okay, now who uses Twitter? And some more hands went up. And he said, okay, now who uses uh, Foursquare? And so on and so forth. And he goes, okay, so most of you actually use social media. How many of you would be willing to help me use it at KLM? Like, we could start using it as part of our corporate approach to customers. And somebody said, what do you mean? And he said, I don't know. I've never used it. I don't use social media. I don't even know what it is. I think it's dumb, but the world uses it. We got to get future proof. We got to get started using it. Anyway, most people didn't want to do it, but eight people came up to him afterwards and said, are you serious? Like you would let us do that. What do you have in mind? He said, well, I have 10,000 euro on a budget and I can give you four hours on Fridays just to try, see what you can do. And man, they invented, long story short, they basically invented an approach where anybody that checked in using Foursquare, anybody that tweeted uh, anything about KLM or even Schiphol Airport, and anybody that used Facebook to list something, they counter Googled them, learned about the people, looked at where they were going, bought them a personalized gift and found them in the airport. And it made this massive splash. They got millions and millions of movements on the internet and they got all this free publicity. They made those eight people into heroes. And I think the long story short here is it's a story about a leader that used very little money to create extremely large effect that he himself could have never designed. And over the years, over the six years that have followed, they have built upon and built upon that experiment and today they're the most social media savvy airline in the world, but mm. they're also top five of all companies in the world. They're, they won a Webby for the last three years now. These oh, like, it's the companies in the world that are creating the most impact through social media. Like mm. New York Times is number two, Google is number one. Uh, last year, KLM was number three. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, long story short on that, I think that that's a story that shows how letting people play to their strengths and not telling everybody you all have to do it, but instead saying, does anybody want to do it? Is this something anybody's interested in? Mm -hmm. That's number one. Number two is the boss didn't say, hey, I got it all figured out. Now you go execute it. The boss said, experiment, go play, see what you can do. And the third one is they themselves got to not only invent the idea, but hand out the gifts and what customers eyes to sparkle you know they could just see their impact on the final customer yeah yeah that's great i love that story um i want to put myself in the shoes of a job seeker now so speak to those people that are transitioning you know they're looking for other opportunities and uh maybe they heard this podcast and they're like hmm wait a minute I want to work for a company that's going to activate my seeking system so that i have purpose at work so if I'm a job seeker, how can I tell before, you know, I sign on the, on the X on the, on the offer letter yeah. if my future employer is actually going to be that kind of employer? That's great. Um, I used to talk about a game called Heroes and Villains, where when you're recruiting for the job and you know, you're talking to the different leaders, you're talking to potential colleagues, 
first thing I'd ask you, start with the positive and say, who's somebody that's really celebrated around here as a hero? And have them name somebody. And say, what is it that they do that makes them so valued? Talk, talk to me about, like, what's the action that they're known for? What's the project that they led? And really get them granular on this. Like, not platitudes, like safety or colleague. Get at the level of, like, what's the project that people talk about that person? You know, so specific granular ideas. And, you know, usually because it's quite positive, they'll talk. And then flip it. And say, now, who's somebody that just didn't work out here? You know, somebody that they might have had the skills, but it just wasn't a good fit. And either they were driven out of the organization or they're being driven out of the organization. Talk to me about what happened there. And what you'll learn is a wealth about what that company really values in a way that there's no value statement for. And in between all of that, listen for the seeking system triggers. Listen for people being able to use their strengths to carve out a unique path. Mm. versus conform they okay. they always conform you always can count on them to do it you know if what really is coming through is they execute they always get it right they never make mistakes they're a safe pair of hands beware beware <laughs> okay that's number one. Second thing is this idea about um do they talk about the meaning of the work in terms of like does the work have meaning does it have value does it have purpose if it's really just what we used to call killers, but what mm-hmm. I mean by that is mercenaries. It's, it's people that are hired to execute perfectly, but don't actually care about the work. That's an important index or an important signal. If there's a load of killers that are just there because the company pays a lot, I would run the other direction. Because <laughs> usually that means flawless execution over learning, practice, trying, developing, growing. That's great, Dan, because sometimes we just don't know, you know, as job seekers, not that I'm, I haven't been one in a, in a long time, but yeah. we, we just, we aren't trying to know what questions to ask, uh, especially in this day and age where purpose and meaning in our work is so important for us, you know, as, as, as human beings. So I appreciate that. Okay, so we're now in the age of AI, robotics, automation, and jobs, repetitive jobs, predictable type jobs are being eliminated everywhere. So Get your crystal ball out. What do you see in the next five years or so that will become the jobs of the future for us humans that robots just can't match and, you know, that will create a competitive advantage? Yeah, that's a really good question. First, a little joke (laughs) that has a lot of meaning. It's a very meaningful joke, but here's what it is. Back when there were horse-drawn carriages and then we invented the car, Loads of the people that drove the horses could learn how to drive the cars. And so it was an upskilling. What we have to worry about is whether we're the drivers or the horses. The horses, they just weren't useful anymore. They, they, you didn't need a horse anymore. <laughs> I'm a little worried that in many jobs, we're not going to need the horse. Hmm. I don't think that that has to be a bad thing. But it means I think that we're in for some real trauma. I think that um, like in the United States, the most common job is truck driver. And I don't think there'll be truck drivers in five years. Mm. I think um, at this point, the testing is done and both Google and Uber have teamed up and it looks like that's fate accompli and that the driver, what's called long haul trucking appears to be the the sort of one of the first victims. And it appears that there'll be about 50% safer. Anyway, long story short is I wouldn't want to be in trucking right now. You know, mm. I, 
So I'm being very sober on purpose because I don't want this to come off as a joke. Now, that said, I have a huge amount of optimism. So the optimism I have, and you know, maybe we have to sort of move toward close here, but um, the optimism that I have is the faster the world changes and the more AI is prevalent, the more the seeking system is a solution to organizational problems because the only thing that we seem to be able to do is be creative and empathetic about what will change customers' lives and the ability to understand your target, your customer, your client, and then think like them, understand them well enough to create, recombine old solutions into new solutions. That seems to be the thing that, at least currently, we don't, we don't understand how we would program something to do that. As you say, there are certain things that can be very routinized. Even things like surgeries can be routinized. And these robots are apparently very good at doing this. Even things like for power legals, case study and case uh, analysis. It appears that that can all be programmed at this point. But understanding the customer, their direction, their own needs, their own direction, their strategies. So far, that seems to be a place where the seeking system solves that. It really, really helps with creativity and innovation, trying new things, but it doesn't seem to be something that the robots yet are, are matching. Yeah. yeah, okay, yeah. And so we're back to human emotions. I hope so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope so. And here's one more thing. I don't think Henry Ford was evil but his business depended on static, repetitive behaviors, making people into robots. People didn't have to like it. My dad used to have a saying, well, of course you don't like work. That's why it's called work. And it's really interesting how that's changing now because what's working now are emotions that feel better. I mean, curiosity feels a lot better than threat. Yeah. Excitement's way better than fear in terms of the way it feels day in and day out. Yeah. Well, it's been a great conversation. We uh, usually bring it home with two questions, Dan. Sure. Personally, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know? Well, the th- one of the triggers that I focused on just a little bit there is this one about playing to your strengths. And I'm really a fan these days of understanding what is it about us that other people perceive and receive as a unique contribution and so the next book that I'm writing is going to focus on that issue and ways that we can help each other understand our unique contributions and bringing that to the fore instead of bringing the limitations and the, you know, the sort of shortcomings to the fore. So I, I feel that leaders and organizations that get good at that will be activating the seeking system a lot more. So that's number one. And then, um, yeah, anyway, that, that's, that's what's getting me out of bed. Great, Dan. And you close it the way you want to close it with a final statement. Is there one thing you would like our listeners to absolutely walk away from here? Because so many of the listeners are leaders, I just want to do a reminder, because I know you know this already, but it's a reminder that as a leader, you are probably the most important person in your employees' lives. And part of that is just the remembering that they're with you more than with their families. Like of the waking hours, you know, we sleep, we have to sleep as humans. Of the hours that we're not sleeping, we're at work most of that. And how it feels at work, the emotions at work have everything to do with what the leader expects, what the leader demands, the way the leader commands. And I think just to let that responsibility, that that weight be heavy is a good thing. 
So to the extent that you can activate more positive emotions at work, you are giving people, you're putting more life into people's living. That's what I would say. Mm, That certainly raises the bar for a lot of leaders, Dan. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your thoughts. If people want to connect with you, how do they do that? At Dan Cable One, I do a pretty active Twitter thing. Wherever I find articles or TED Talks or shows, I post the hell out of that stuff. And that's working. I'm, I'm really having fun with that, speaking of social media. And then anybody can just email me. Um, I'm also on uh, LinkedIn. So, you know, whatever works. The book is called Alive at Work, The Neuroscience of Helping Your People Love What They Do. And I appreciate you and your wisdom. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. Really nice talking with you. What a great conversation. So here's what's on my mind as I now get to sit and kind of listen to the recording of uh, that conversation. You know, I got some things I need to share. So exploring, experimenting, and learning. It's how we're designed as human beings to live and work. And fear, well, it's not so good for activating creativity and innovation, to Dan's point. And so we need to come up with ways to allow our employees to be playful so that they can come up with new ideas. So imagine a workplace where leaders can set the conditions for their people to be creative, to experiment, to fail forward, and then come up with some mind-boggling solutions that are going to benefit the company. So Dan says that we have these new emotions now for competitive advantage that are so different than what they used to be, that were fear-based and full of anxiety. And one of them is allowing others to practice more curiosity. And I think that's why we need to eliminate people in leadership roles that aspire to lead through fear and control because it squashes curiosity and experimentation and exploration. So you just won't get the kind of results you want and you're not gonna grow. You're not gonna grow as a leader Your employees won't grow as people, and your company won't grow its profits. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Love in Action Nation. If you want to stay in the conversation, please subscribe to Love in Action wherever you get your podcasts. And I would really appreciate a kind review as it helps to boost our rankings and get the word out so we can change the world through Love in Action. Join me next week when I sit down and chat with best-selling author Whitney Johnson to discuss her book, Build an A-Team. Until then, don't forget, love in action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. Give it a try. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.